This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. Earlier this spring, I finished uh, reading a book by um, a scientist out of the UK, uh, Dr. Adam Hart. He wrote this book called The Deadly Balance, Predators and People in a Crowded World. And each chapter is dedicated to an animal, a carnivore, land carnivore, that um, is known to actively hunt and kill humans for, for food. One of the interesting, I guess, themes that I that I took from the book was the disproportionate number of people in the world that are killed every year, um, consumed, partially consumed by large predators that come from uh, impoverished segments of cultures throughout the world. They're people who are living off the land that have to put themselves at risk of where these big predators hunt tigers, lions, jaguars, leopards, uh, these sorts of crocodiles, you know, because they're gathering food, um, resources, firewood. Uh, they just have no choice. They have to be in places at times that the predators are actively hunting as well and they see human beings as food. The other aspect of the book that kind of struck me was that a sort of disproportionate amount of people that are are uh, killed by these large carnivores are indigenous people. Again, doesn't necessarily mean indigenous people that are impoverished. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways to to look at uh, that's not just economic, but indigenous people again that are living a way of life on the land that puts them in places. Uh, time and places that are at risk of these large carnivores. 
So recently there was a story out of uh, India of a small girl that was uh, walking with her family kind of in a, in a urban-ish kind of uh, park area. Um, she was attacked and killed by, by a leopard. Closer to home, I have a story here to cover uh, that's kind of following along this themes. So in the book, the author talks about, and, and, and I think folks probably know this, but the largest land carnivore slash predator of human beings on earth is the polar bear. A significant portion of the world's polar bear population lives in northern Canada in the Arctic. And of course, they overlap with the Inuit people uh, that are still as closely as possible living lives that are fairly connected to the land. So this story goes back uh, into late July in Nunavut territory. So a team of people that was comprised of people from an Inuit community on uh, Ungava Bay and a team of um, cultural experts from the Avatar Cultural Institute uh, in Nunavut. Uh, they're an organization that works on preserving Inuit uh, language and culture. So this group of people set out on an expedition <clears throat> in uh, Canada's Arctic. Over the last year and a bit, the Avatech Cultural Institute has been working with a museum to get back the remains of Inuit people from this area that were exhumed in an archaeological dig and taken away in the 1930s. And so the Cultural Institute was able to get those remains back, repatriated, that's called, uh, from the museum. And this was an expedition to go out to bury the remains of those unknown people, apparently four people from the 1930s. That's when they were dug up. So when, when they were actually uh, you know, buried, may have been decades and decades before that. So this expedition was to go back out into the land um, in the area where they came from and repatriate their remains to a traditional way of burying people on the land. So a father, daughter, and a son had from the Inuit community on, on Gava Bay joined this expedition to go out um, to do that just because of their connection, because the people came from their area, uh, even though they didn't directly know who they were. So this expedition went out, they overnighted uh, in an area they set up a tents. Uh, the teams um, camped out. They were they were accessing the area by boats. And at two a.m. in the morning, a polar bear um, broke into the tent and attacked the daughter and the father, the elder. Um, the son, I think he was in around his thirties, had actually shot. He was able to shoot and kill the bear. It was a young adult polar bear. The daughter and the elder, her father, uh, sustained serious but not life-threatening injuries uh, later. They had communication. They were able to get messages out to the nearby community at, I think, like 4 a.m. in the morning by 6.30. Um, rescue teams were there, uh, picked up um, the injured people, transported them. Uh, helicopters picked them up, and, the, and they were taken into, the, into a, a nearby hospital 
I think by about 1030 in the morning. So apparently they are, are fine. Like I said, non, non life threatening injuries, but it just, uh, yeah, it was kind of interesting. The number of stories, uh, worldwide, like this one in India, here's one in Canada that I don't know. I just seem to be more aware or more sensitive after reading Dr. Hart's book, um, the deadly balance and just this whole concept of, you know, there's thousands of people all over the world every year um, that are, you know, hunted down by these big land carnivores and 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 killed. Uh, they just see human beings as prey. In this case, in Canada's Arctic, um, the polar bear, so the largest, you know, uh, predator of humans on on land, was after these people and a young adult polar bear probably, um, you know, like any of these stories that we hear, uh, the younger bears, uh, you know, being pushed away, struggling in those first, first few years of life to, to, um, kind of make it on their own, apparently tried to seize the opportunity of, of, um, attacking, you know, the, and, and killing, uh, one or, or more of the people in this party. This, this really kind of brought home some of the points in the book about the way people and cultures live. Uh, and, and, I, and I think we take this for granted. I know I do. <clears throat> I live, you know, there's grizzly bears come and going from, from more around where, where I live and cougars. But for the most part, we're fairly protected from that. My lifestyle, uh, the structures that I live in, the times of day that I'm outside versus inside, those sorts of things, my access to firearms. But, but there are people that live differently. And, and here's a case where a family went along with a team of cultural experts to repatriate and bury remains of their people, which was out on the land in polar bear country and burying them in a way that they've done for thousands of years. And that puts them at risk of polar bears seeing them uh, uh, and and hunting them down, which is exactly what happened in this case. So uh, unfortunate a bear was shot, but um, you know, a good thing that, you know, that nobody was, was killed in that. So it, you know, I also look at this, you know, when we think about, uh, you know, the leopards and the lions and stuff, you know, these stories there are on other sides of the world, uh, doesn't <clears throat> happen here in Canada. And uh, this is a great example of, you know, to show that no, um, people living in Canada, uh, indigenous people and the Inuit are not immune from from a lifestyle that puts them at risk of these large predators, um, especially polar bears. Uh, we, you know, most people are probably fairly well aware of where these animals live in the Arctic and limited food supply, pretty open, you know, on the ice packs, uh, or on the tundra, not a lot of places to, to hide or get away from, you know, bears that have the capability of standing up and, um, breaking a window and crawling into a building that's, um, 10, 12 feet off the ground, <laughs> you know, it's like, or people that are living in, you know, plywood, um, box houses is what they were called, uh, in the Arctic, you know, they're, they're not living in structures that a polar bear can't, you know, can't easily get into. So pretty scary stuff. Interesting story though, just kind of, um, like I said, come coming um full circle with some of the the stories uh and data and stuff that i read in 
um, in this book. So if you're interested in this type of stuff, it, it's a pretty cool read uh, in the fact that it's kind of like a chapter by chapter on, you know, each of the, the major animals, uh, the deadly balance, predators and people in a crowded world, uh, lions, tigers, crocodiles, um, hyenas, big cats, bears, um, dogs, those are all kind of like the main, um, the main big animals that are covered. So in that cheetahs, leopards, um, jaguars, and, uh, bears, uh, they come onto the North American continent talking about grizzly bears and polar bears. So cool book, interesting story. Um, luckily turned out for the best for, for everybody could have been worse, uh, in Canada's Ungava Bay area of Nunavut. Now, staying on the topic of polar bears in Canada's Arctic, reports coming out of uh, the Hudson Bay area around the community of Churchill and Manitoba, which is known as the, the polar bear capital of the world. There's the big e ecotourism industry around uh, the polar bears there. So when the ice breaks up on Hudson Bay, the polar bears have to come inland. They have to hunt and persist on land until they're able to go back out onto the onto the ice packs to hunt seals and that puts people again that live in the communities along Hudson Bay and particularly Churchill and some of the small outlying areas at risk of polar bears in in your town um, coming around the corner of your house maybe in your house Churchill also has the famous um, polar bear jail that they will tranquilize and transport polar bears that are hanging around the town too much, presenting a threat. Uh, they put them into this holding facility for, um, several days, uh, before they're released, hazing, those sorts of things, uh, as, as a way of getting polar bears to, to stop hanging around town. So as of August 15th, Manitoba officials have reported that they have 76 reports of polar bears in Churchill. This time last year, they were only dealing with 18 complaints. That is a significant increase in the numbers of polar bear uh, that are in and about the community of Churchill that conservation officers uh, and wildlife officials are having to deal with to keep bears and people safe. So during a regular spring there's around 600 polar bears that live on the western side of hudson bay that have to come inland after this the sea breaks up and they spread out across several hundred kilometers of the coastline uh, from nunavut all the way into ontario and uh, through manitoba this is an interesting story uh, for several reasons it kind of ties into the first story about these big animals uh, living around where there's people and actively taking the opportunity to grab a person, you know, if they can. From what I've read in previous years, uh, wildlife officers, well, last year, didn't have to capture, sedate, or put any of the polar bears from those 18 complaints into the polar bear jail, uh, which they call the catch and release program until October. Uh, this year, July and August, they're already having to sedate, capture, move bears into that facility and move them uh, back into the hinterland. So 
the primary reason that I understand following polar bear scientists is with climate change, the ice is coming off earlier off the Arctic oceans, off Hudson Bay, which drives the polar bears inland. Um, they spend more time on land. Life is harder on land for a polar bear because they're not getting the calories that they're getting out on the ice pack because they're hunting seals out there. Once they get inland, they're, you know, vegetation, duck eggs, garbage dumps, you know, those sorts of things. So, so that that's creating a problem, uh, that the earlier the ice comes off, the quicker these 600 and something polar bears come on land where, where people are. So it's quite, quite a shocking difference between this year and last year. Hopefully everybody that lives up there in that area of the Hudson Bay and across all the territories and provinces in Canada will be able to stay safe and polar bears will be able to stay out of out of harm's way. Generally they're the ones that take uh, the brunt of this and you know there's only so many times they allow repeat offenders to come back until the bear is destroyed so uh, nobody likes to see that either. Nobody likes to see people uh, killed by bears either. On the topic of bears, uh, grizzly bears in British Columbia, we released a podcast uh, on the 15th of August about British Columbia's uh, draft grizzly bear management plan. They're calling it a stewardship framework, which is allowing, uh, or they're asking the public to make comments on the grizzly bear stewardship plan uh, before September 8th. If you haven't already listened to the Hunter Conservationist podcast, uh, our last episode on the Grizzly Bear Management Plan with the Executive Director of the BC Wildlife Federation, Jesse Zeman, giving the Federation's uh, analysis of the government's plan and its shortfalls, please go listen to that and take action. Go onto our Instagram page, look for the link. Uh, to the grizzly bear stewardship plan. If you just go online to Google and search Engage BC, you'll find the general website where the government of British Columbia posts stuff that's open for public comment. You'll scroll down, scroll down a ways. You'll see two plans, one on grizzly bear stewardship and one on the grizzly bear viewing industry. And please, 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 no matter where you live across Canada or anywhere in the world, if you're listening to it, Go on to that website, fill out the survey, provide your thoughts, listen to the podcast. You'll get some good analytical thoughts on the deficiencies of the plan, which would make it very easy for you to go back and echo those through the various um, sections of the survey. It's like a questionnaire. And I think of anything that's important, grizzly bear conservation is important, but I think in this plan, it's also very important to you know, have a pro hunting voice kind of threaded through uh, your review of, you know, or your comments that you're posting on the Grizzly Bear Stewardship Plan. There are a lot of, let's call them anti-grizzly bear hunting organizations in British Columbia that are creating large campaigns to get people to go on and comment and continue to reinforce that they don't want to see hunting of grizzly bears in the province. They don't like the plan, a lot of the groups, because there is talk about hunting in the plan. No specific uh, details about it, but the plan does talk to the number of First Nations communities um, in 
British Columbia that actually are actively lobbying the government to get grizzly bear hunting reinstated in their traditional territories and hunting reinstated as licensed hunters, resident hunters, and they want quota back for their guide outfitting industry because it's part of their economy. So the anti-groups are freaked out by this. And so they've got some substantially large campaigns where they're trying to bombard the government with the don't allow hunting message. So I'm encouraging folks to go learn a little bit about the plan. That's why we created the Hunter Conservationist podcast was to educate people uh, in you know less than an hour, uh, the ins and outs of the plan so that you can effectively go on and echo a pro hunting, uh, even a conservation perspective on grizzly bear management in British Columbia that's based on a hunter's perspective. At the end of the day, I want to see hunters making comments on this plan and that the people that read the comments know hunters are saying these things. You can identify as a hunter in the plan. So please, 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 please go take that opportunity. Very important to uh, standing up for hunting in Canada. All right, switching over to fish. Y'all know I like to cover stories about uh, fishing, fish conservation uh, across the country, uh, even though it's not quote unquote hunting. I know hunters all across the country are fishermen as well, are fisher people, and we all love to fish. We all love to go to the ocean once in a while and catch some salmon and uh, whatnot and have that in the freezer with our moose meat. And from a conservation and a management of a public resource perspective. Uh, I always cover these stories, even though they're not hunting, because we can see some of these same themes that we see in wildlife and habitat uh, issues across the country. So in mid-July on the west coast of British Columbia, a decision was brought down by DFO, Department of Fisheries and Oceans, that caught everybody by surprise and it was a significant reduction in the chinook retention daily retention so they reduced fishermen's retention from two chinook today to one per day so 50 percent reduction in in uh, uh the daily bag limit literally days before the season opened in several uh zones on the west coast from what I understand, there's also size limits of 45 to 80 centimeters were also announced. Uh, so that was kind of putting fish upwards of about the 15 pounds. I'm not a hundred percent sure if that means that they, they, if the fish was over 80 centimeters, you couldn't keep it. So possibly like big, big breeding females. Anyways, uh, if you know, write, write me in and let me know the details on, on that one. But I think the big thing, the big thing in the story here is, is, is lack of notice, lack of consultation. And for the fishing tours, tourism industry with clients booked coming in that fish that want to take fish home for their freezers were within days of the fishing season starting told, um, that their daily bag catch, uh, limit was reduced to one. So areas 20-1, 20-2 in the uh, Strait of Juan de Fuca, Port Renf Renfrew up to the Benilla Point Lighthouse. This is in place until July 31st. The one Chinook per day limit uh, is also being enforced uh, on 
the Haida Gwaii area and the islands on the west coast. Those would be management areas 121, 123, and also off of northern Vancouver Island uh, in area 110. Now, in all of these areas, DFO said they're going to reinstate the two uh, Chinook daily limit on August 31st. It'll get reinstated, but I mean, what it looks like is they're they're cutting the quota in half for the uh, the bulk of the uh, fishing tourism period through July and August of the summer, uh, and then once the the big pulse of fishing tourism is starting to wane off into the early part of September, then the bag limit will go back up to, or the catch limit will go back up to two Chinook per day. So interesting story. Unfortunate that, you know, folks, especially those in the business, um, you know, that own boats that take people out on fishing tours and stuff, guides, didn't know about this till a few days before their season started. Now jumping over to the East Coast, talking about the little fish, the capelin. So recently, marine scientists and conservationists uh, have called on the Newfoundland government, Newfoundland Labrador government, to um, restrict the commercial capelin fishery. So, well, they they would be asking DFO to pause the fishery in Newfoundland and Labrador, sorry, not the Newfoundland and Labrador governments, because uh, this is a federal jurisdiction. So they're asking the federal government in Newfoundland and Labrador to basically stop the commercial capelin fishery. The capelin stocks uh, have plummeted along with the northern cod stocks. They have been drastically reduced since the 1970s. DFO scientists are saying that the capelin have been in the critical zone. So their populations have dipped down to such low numbers. They're in what they call the critical conservation zone, which is the zone that either conservation measures will see them rebound or they go extinct. And capelin have been in the critical zone since 1991, around 2013, 2014. They had a um, a pick-me-up in their populations, but for the most part, they've been identified as being significant conservation concerns since uh, since the 1990s. Now, capelin, I kind of liken them to herring on the, the, the West Coast. So small fish in large spawning masses come into the shore uh, to spawn. The average person can go fish those uh, in the Atlantic provinces and people will literally use like nets and hats and shopping bags and everything and just scoop up these fish in in the shallows. And um, and then they're, they use them for personal consumption, um, cooking, canning, those sorts of sorts of things. The Commercial fishery uh, has sort of been one of those fisheries where they tried to shift the impact of the collapse of the northern cod stocks onto other stocks to keep the commercial fisheries going. So they've been fishing capelin commercially fairly heavily since the 1970s, as I understand it. Uh, and then within 20 years, the capelin stocks had had collapsed in the 1990s. On the commercial market, the female capelins 
are separated from the males and they're prized because of the roe. And those fish are, are sold in China, Taiwan, and Japan. The male capelins uh, are sold in the U.S. and they're used for food in zoos. In Eastern Europe, the male capelins are sold into um, the human food market, um, sold in grocery stores, whatnot. So interesting story about a tiny, tiny little fish. Uh, when I have covered uh, stories in the past about herring on the West Coast, like I said, it's kind of a very similar uh, theme to the Capelin uh, on, on the Atlantic coast. Sticking with the topic of fish, um, this is a court case that uh, was recently ruled on in Ontario under the Federal Fisheries Act. So an Ontario court uh, judge recently ruled that Indigenous people are not exempt from the Fisheries Act. This is in the specific case in question goes back to June of last year, where an individual uh, Indigenous person from the Mohawk Nation uh, was found or was charged with violating the Fisheries Act by dumping um, material, uh, I don't know exactly what it was, into the Bay of Quint under Section 35 of the Federal Fisheries Act. Uh, that section states that no person shall carry on any worker activity that re results in the harmful alteration, disruption, or destruction of fish habitat. And dumping soil, rocks, anything into fish-bearing waters, as far as I've learned over my lifetime, without authorization, is a violation of Section 35 of the Federal Fisheries Act. Uh, and then federal fisheries officers will then investigate, lay charges. And in this case, uh, it went to court. The individual was claiming because he was Mohawk, that he had treaty rights and he was exempt from Section 35 of the Federal Fisheries Act. And he had a treaty right to modify his land without interference, despite the Fisheries Act. The judge ruled in this case that the individual, uh, regardless of his constitutional rights to fish, did not have a constitutional right to quote unquote, modify his land as he chooses for quote unquote, his enjoyment of it. Uh, the judge also said his land, um, what the person was claiming was his land did not extend into the Bay of Quint, uh, is what the, what the, uh, the judge wrote. So very interesting case. Uh, this isn't about harvesting rights and the constitutional rights to harvest by indigenous peoples in the country. It was a test of the Canadian courts about indigenous people's right to alter fish habitat. And in this case, an Ontario court ruled that indigenous people do not have a constitutional right to alter or harm fish habitat. Interesting. All right. So switching over to caribou. So Quebec has 
a boreal caribou population that's listed as federally endangered. The federal government has threatened to use the Federal Species at Risk Act to step in and take control of the protection of caribou habitat in Quebec. They have not done that. Uh, there's continued logging in critical caribou habitat in Quebec and a lot of controversy around that. So I actually just came across a scientific study that had been done on what the public thinks of the government of Quebec's response to protecting the endangered uh, boreal caribou in, in northern Quebec. So the highlights of this study, which was a survey of about a thousand people in Quebec, that so they they concluded that uh, the, the endangered caribou are still being impacted by habitat habitat degradation from logging activities. Generally, people that were surveyed, Quebec citizens, showed a strong desire for greater uh, and, and stronger conservation programs for the endangered caribou. What was kind of interesting was people that did not live in the regions where the endangered caribou were, were more supportive of stronger conservation actions. Residents who lived in the areas where the endangered caribou uh, lived were less concerned about caribou conservation and generally more supportive of continued forestry activities. Across the board, all the people, regardless of their place of residence, their social or economic sort of situation, generally people were advocating or, or in support of stronger conservation measures for caribou. But in this particular case, there was a, a difference between people that relied on forestry that lived with endangered caribou versus people that didn't rely on forestry then didn't live with caribou. Um, kind of an interesting uh, not surprising, but interesting. We've seen that story kind of unfold in uh, Alberta and British Columbia as well. Survey respondents had also found, noted or, or reported to the survey found that most of the survey respondents said that some job losses in forestry were okay if that was followed by very effective conservation measures for caribou. And finally, one of the main highlights from this study was that the survey respondent said that the government actions for caribou conservation did not align with general public opinion on protecting caribou or the importance of them. So, uh, so here's an actual, you know, scientific study, rigorous study that's kind of been echoing a lot of stories that I've been covering across the country about you know, people being dissatisfied with the actions that various provincial and territorial governments are taking on protecting endangered species. All right, uh, jumping up uh, back up into Canada's Arctic, but staying on the topic of caribou. So the caribou that live on Baffin Island have suffered a 95% decline since the 1990s. Uh, that was in two, two, 2015. 
from 1990s to 2015, about a 95% decline from population estimates of anywhere around 60 to I think 180,000. That's a really wide guesstimate. So let's just say somewhere in the 1990s, in the middle of that, maybe like 110, 120,000 caribou and a 95% decline. So we're down into like the few thousand to 10,000 ish, you know, um, multiples of caribou that are left on Baffin Island. So of course, these caribou herds in Baffin Island are still very, very important for sustenance hunters of Inuit people and people that live in the north. Now, a lot of wildlife decisions in the north, uh, especially in Nunavut, are made by a wildlife board. This wildlife board is comprised of a chairman from each of the region's hunter and trapper organizations. They get together, review data, bring in traditional knowledge and bring in the needs and concerns of hunters from the various uh, trappers organizations, obviously reflecting their local communities. And they try to land on agreed upon harvest strategies and agreed upon wildlife, overall wildlife management strategies. This board a year ago was asking for a substantial increase to the harvesting quota allowed for the Baffin Island caribou, even though they were, um, you know, had been declined, like I said, 95% since the 1990s. And they wanted to see an, uh, an increased harvest over the next decade. Last year, the allowable harvest for caribou on Baffin Island was 250 total caribou. And hunters across all the regions reached that quota very early in the springtime, May 22nd, the 2021-22 season was shut down. They had reached 250 caribou from the Baffin Island herd. Now, the chairmans of these hunters and trappers organizations that were bringing community knowledge uh, and and traditional knowledge to, to the board, uh, reviews of the caribou management and, and harvest strategy were saying that the declines are cyclical, but they're also tied to availability of lichen, their main food source. So when there's less lichen available, they see declines in caribou populations. When there's more abundant lichen, caribou populations respond and increase. So the chairman's had said there's currently on the land in the Baffin region, there's not enough lichen um, to sustain the caribou numbers that are there. Therefore, they need to increase the harvesting of the caribou because the caribou numbers are growing at a faster pace than the lichen. So they were trying to bring the perspective of bringing the caribou numbers down to the carrying capacity of the land, being able to provide enough lichen for the caribou. Not that they were trying to like over harvest or, or take more than their share or, or harvest in an unsustainable fashion. My read on this is they're actually trying to say we need to harvest more because right now there's caribou are increasing faster than the lichens recovering. The chairman on the wildlife board 
were asking for, so 250 was the allowable harvest last year. So they were asking for a increase in a hundred caribou for hunters for this year, 75 next year and 50, an additional 50 every year after that until the year 2031, 32 hunting season. The government of Nunavut was only proposing an increase of 50 caribou for hunters uh, over the next 10 years. So quite a gap between what the government wants to increase the Baffin caribou harvest and what the chairman of the, each of the hunters and trappers organizations on the wildlife board were asking for. Now the allotment for hunters out of the Baffin Island caribou population for the community of Ukaluit, uh was only 74 caribou this year. So each of the communities are going to get an allotment for that 250 uh, total out of out of the herd. So in this one community in Ukaluit, they were only allowed 74 caribou. And on August 16th, they reached that quota and their season was basically shut down or their their quota had been filled off the Baffin Island herd by um by the middle of August so essentially these folks in this one community or any community that has their allotment of that of that overall cumulative harvest once they reach it unless there's some sort of like really extenuating circumstances have to wait a year before they can get a quota again to harvest harvest caribou now I was reading the comments in the comment section of this news story uh, from the from the um, the news outlet that had covered this story, and and apparently what I gleaned from this is one of the issues of people that live in Nunavut are saying about the caribou harvest is hunters are harvesting these caribou to sell the meat. And that the demand is because there is a commerce, a market on selling caribou meat. One person wrote in their comments, I cried when an elderly lady in her 60s paid for caribou meat, wondering what we'd become. A lot going on in Nunavut uh, with caribou management, especially the Baffin Island caribou herd and a market around a species, an iconic species to the people of Nunavut uh, and the question of hunting for money and selling meat when I assume like most indigenous communities in North America, people were just hunting and distributing meat throughout their communities. Now there's an actual, um, as I understand it, a commerce trade around around caribou meat so doesn't mean that's how everybody's doing it but there is uh, obviously based on these comments a element of commercial hunt uh, and selling of caribou meat so and you know this is different values but the north american model of wildlife conservation of course is from a, uh, a western european perspective but there is the one tenant that says that markets for game shall be eliminated. And that goes back to the late 1800s, early 1900s, when wildlife populations were being decimated because they were being hunted as a commercial 
uh, food. They were being hunted so that meat could be sold into commercial markets. Um, conservationists realized how devastating it was to hunt wild animals for commercial uh, marketing purposes, and that was brought to uh, an end in North America as part of the North American conservation model. So obviously, um, Indigenous people everywhere in North America can have, can have different perspectives on this, uh, but here's a case where these comments that I were reading, I'm making the assumption that they were coming from um, Inuit people that were reading the article and, and posting the comments that were actually sort of, I guess, showing their dismay for the fact that people are having to buy caribou meat. And, uh, like this one person said, wondering what we'd become. All right. Skipping over to Manitoba, uh, the Manitoba government recently announced a increase of $880,000 to the testing and staff capacity in the government to monitor and test for chronic wasting disease in deer harvested by hunters and in the deer population. So hunters harvest the deer, they submit samples, uh, the labs test it, tell the hunters whether they should or shouldn't eat their meat. And then they also, the game managers are keeping track of where they're finding CWD because it is relatively new in Manitoba. Only a couple of years ago, it was first detected. Uh, that's part of the surveillance program of trying to understand how prevalent it is in the deer populations and what regions it's in, which gives game managers the opportunities to use hunting as a tool to increase harvest, uh, increase sampling, to understand um, and manage CWD. So this $880,000 investment was to expand the testing capacity so that um, samples that are brought in by hunters could be turned around faster. Hunters would know positive or negative and uh, wildlife managers would know positive or negative and be able to react uh, a little quicker. Hunters play an incredibly important role in just doing what they do, which is to go out and hunt deer, but bringing in the samples of the deer, which is generally um, uh, the nodes out of the neck and the throat area. Uh, bringing in those samples so that the, they can be tested in, in the lab uh, or they bring in like in BC, they just ask to drop off the whole head and then the biologist will, will open up the neck and take out um, the lymph nodes themselves. But when they first started the mandatory program for hunters to submit samples uh, a few years ago, they brought in a thousand samples and last year in the 2022, 2022, 23 season, that number jumped to 6,000 samples brought in by hunters. And so that's part of what the Manitoba government is having to respond to is those, um, you know, six times the number of samples this year is probably going to be in the tens of thousands. If you know that those, uh, increase in numbers submitted by hunters, uh, continue. So, uh, just under a million dollars, uh, being added to the CWD program. Uh, so just to put this into context where I live in, uh, British Columbia, uh, we do not have CWD in our ungulate populations here yet 
It is next door in Alberta. It's moving west in Alberta. It's uh, fairly high prevalence prevalence rates in parts of Alberta. It has not yet been confirmed in British Columbia. There are mandatory sampling zones in the southern part of BC where I live because we're right close to the Alberta border. Uh, it's also been found south of us in Montana and Idaho as well. So most folks are just say like CWD is knocking on the door of British Columbia. So hunters are submitting samples, they're being tested, um, they're staying on top of it. But here's the difference. BC has no dedicated funding, like normal budget line item for CWD testing and the surveillance program in the wildlife health branch for the CWD program. It relies on outside funding from the surcharge that's on hunters and trappers and guide outfitters licenses, as well as a contribution from a government funded forced stewardship um, funding program. But as far as BC saying this is important uh, for managing uh, and preventing CWD from establishing in BC, actually having a dedicated budget for the wildlife health officials that run the CWD program, uh, they don't have money allotted to them. In Manitoba, the government just increased increased what they've already been spending by an additional $880,000. Big differences in ethos in the different provinces. Uh, I think Alberta's down from a million plus that it budgeted into its CWD program to about half a million now, I think somewhere in that neighborhood because they had been sampling and developing models to predict CWD prevalence and spread in Alberta. They have so much data, their models are so calibrated, they're able to reduce the sampling requirements, reduce the budget for that, and use the models and a smaller data set uh, with higher precision to keep track of what CWD is doing in Alberta. Uh, so I believe they're around half a million dollars. Like I said, Manitoba is almost putting, dumping another million bucks into it. So um, big difference across the province across the provinces. That's why I love covering these stories so that you can compare and contrast what's going on across, across Canada. Cause a lot of times we only kind of know what's going on in our local area. And I'm trying to kind of give you the big picture in the Northwest territories there. So I'm, this is kind of switching over to trapping now. And I like to cover a few trapping stories. Cause again, like the fishing stories, I think, uh, hunters are interested in fur and fur trapping and you might also be a trapper as well. I've just been getting into it the last couple of years myself. Uh, so I, I like to keep track of what's going on in trapping across the country and conservation of, of fur bearers as well. So in the Northwest Territories, there is a fur program called the Genuine Mackenzie Valley Fur Program. And it was established uh, in, in the year 2000. And it's basically provides trappers in the Northwest Territories access to the fur market, but it protects them against um, the big upswings that we've seen through COVID, uh, whatnot, and the various anti-fur campaigns, the impact that has on the fur market uh, globally. So this Genuine Mackenzie Valley Fur Program 
is, is a program that is designed to kind of stabilize prices for trappers that are participating in the fur program so that they don't suffer these, these big market declines. Uh, the fur program is also in the business of promoting uh, uh, fur market information and associated and helping trappers and craftspeople that are turning furs into products uh, and selling furs in auctions and various, various markets. So recently the Northwest Territories undertook a review of this, uh, this fur program and kind of came out of it with a few uh, major recommendations. So apparently a lot of the trappers uh, in the Northwest Territories didn't really understand which department of which agency in the government was actually doing what for them in trapping. So they were really confused about who was doing what. So one of the major recommendations was that the government make it much more clear for harvesters in the Northwest Territories about what department and which government agencies is is responsible for doing what in helping them in in trapping. Uh, they also, one of the major recommendations was that this uh, genuine Mackenzie Valley Fur Program get together more regularly, have meetings so they have a more clear direction on what they're doing. And a big thrust of the recommendations was to improve awareness of this program and participating in the program for the economic benefit of harvesters because there wasn't a widespread awareness in the fur harvesting community in the Northwest Territories that this fur program uh, and its benefits to help trappers actually even existed. They didn't all know that. So uh, that was the fur review uh, in the Northwest Territories recently. All right, elk. Uh, elk hunting season's coming up here in a couple of weeks for me. And this is a story coming out of Ontario on elk management. So the Environmental Registry of Ontario recently released two decisions in the springtime where they rescinded the elk population objectives for two of uh, Ontario's smaller elk populations, the Nipissing French River Herd and the Lake Huron North Shore Herd. So in order for those herds to be hunted and managed sustainably they needed to have elk populations set for them there was an announcement back in 2014 and a posting in the environmental registry that population objectives were going to be established for those two herds and that was never done and so recently the environmental registry of ontario ontario government said we're just we're just rescinding all of that. We're not going to actually develop population objectives for those two elk herds. So the Bancroft elk population in Ontario, uh, I guess, continues to support a small hunting season, uh, which is partly based on the fact that there is a population objective for that herd. Um, but it's the only herd in Ontario that has a population set for it. I am gathering from this, uh, and if you're from Ontario and you know a bit more, that the other two herds that the intent to establish an elk population objective uh, that's being rescinded, that they're not going to have a hunting season on them, or they're going to have a hunting season, 
but no one actually knows whether or not the hunting season is harmful or not harmful to the elk population because there's no population objective set. So a spokesperson from the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters as well, the organization as a whole, uh, but the spokesperson for OFAH said in the article that I read, uh, they've been trying to convince the government to re-engage in active elk management to ensure that they don't disappear from Ontario again. So elk were there one time and they disappeared. And the spokesperson for OFA said it would be a shame to squander the millions of dollars and thousands of volunteer hours that were used and invested into reintroducing elk into Ontario. So those were hunters, hunter dollars, probably made up a big part of that and hunters being involved in the reintroduction programs in Ontario to help establish and rewild or reintroduce elk that were in Ontario so that there could be some huntable populations. And unfortunately, it looks like the Ontario government has decided just to pull the plug on two of those herds as far as at least using science to set population objectives and of course, from that flows a sustainable harvest level. Now, in the last episode, we were talking about Saskatchewan and some of the changes in Saskatchewan laws that are affecting hunters' access to private land to hunt and kind of the concerns over the risk of a um, hunt-to-pay model coming into Saskatchewan. Uh, that was an episode that uh, Robbie Kroger and I did together so since we did that, a resident of Saskatchewan has reached out to me uh, after listening to the episode and said, hey, here's a few tweaks to what you guys talked about. This is amazing that people are doing that and following us along and engaging with me on, uh, on this journey on the Around Canada podcast. So I just want to, and I, and I made a commitment that I would just bring these, um, these notable points up in this podcast based on what we talked about in episode 59. I've learned that the reasons for the change to private land access, so the way it worked in Saskatchewan before was if it was unfenced, unposted private land, hunters could hunt on it without permission. And laws, trespassing laws in Saskatchewan were changed. And so now you have to have permission as a hunter to go on these unposted, unfenced um, private parcels. So originally we said that was due to hunter behavior. So what I've learned is it that that law being brought in had to do more with rural crime than with hunter behavior. I've been told hunting behavior has had a bit to do with driving these changes uh, in the law requiring permission, but mostly it was because of rural crime. So making a bit of a correction there, which is super cool because we just want to get to the truth. Also, uh, it's not the law that a hunter has to have written permission, uh, but the hunter has to have permission and they would have to be able to demonstrate that permission, which is my understanding why the Saskatchewan Wildlife Federation is saying, here, use one of these permission cards and actually get it in writing so that you have proof in the field that you have permission uh, to be on unposted private land. 
So that's apparently the best way just to clear things up in the field if you're checked by a conservation officer. So the, the last caveat to this scenario of paying the pay for hunt model in Saskatchewan and the concerns around that is I've learned that landowners in Saskatchewan cannot charge for access for hunting. That's also the case in Alberta uh, that I reported in the last episode, but it's legal in Ontario. So Saskatchewan, apparently you're not allowed to charge for hunting access on private land. And the fact that Southern Saskatchewan, the Southern half of Saskatchewan is mostly private. Uh, that would be quite an issue. Uh, the one listener said if laws were ever changed that would allow landowners to start charging, uh, the, for under the, you know, the pay to pay to play, uh, type model that we're seeing in some of the States in the U S as well. Another listener wrote in, uh, with a bit of information about, uh, stories that I cover here, there, and everywhere on, uh, on this podcast, which is to do with endangered species across the country. And the general theme that the federal government keeps threatening provinces to intervene with the power of the species at risk act to take control of the habitat for federally endangered wildlife and how they threaten, but they're not doing that as well that the federal government is not listing some populations of, uh, wild fish, wild animals as being endangered and, and ignoring the fact that their populations are, um, critical at all. So one of the listeners wrote in and said, uh, here's actually an example where the federal government did do something to protect habitat of an endangered species, uh, which was in 2013, the federal government brought in an order under the federal species at risk act to protect habitat in Alberta and Saskatchewan for the greater sage grouse, which is a federally endangered species. And this was a specific habitat protection order which was generally protecting sagebrush in and around subdivisions and roads in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Now it's, man, it's freaking hard to read this order. I, I was reading it and trying to, uh, you got to have lawyers interpret this stuff. And it's like, yes, there's stuff in there about protecting sagebrush in and around subdivisions, but then there's all this language around, but you don't have to do that if it's within 15 meters or if that area had actually had a crop taken off of it in the previous three years to when this order came into effect. There's all these kind of like, like exemptions. So my question is when I see that is like, well, what's actually left that's being protected? Uh, is it enough to provide protection for the greater sage grows? However, the bigger point here is here's an example where the federal government actually did uh, bring in the habitat protection provision of the Federal Species at Risk Act uh, for wildlife, uh, the greater sage grouse. Stories that I've covered in the past on this theme where the federal government isn't really stepping up to the plate uh, and using the full power of the Federal Species at Risk Act to keep species from blinking out. One was the Thompson and Chilcotin steelhead runs of the Fraser River, known as the Interior Fraser River Steelhead. 
uh, down to less than a hundred and dozens of fish left in these iconic steelhead runs. A number of years ago, the federal government um, reviewed an emergency review of the status of those steelhead populations uh, clearly should have been listed as federally endangered species in the Fraser River would have had significant implications to the commercial fisheries on the Fraser and the federal government declined to list uh, those two steelhead runs as being endangered, whether or not they still exist anymore. Uh, you know, we're probably going to find out later this fall. The southern resident killer whale population off the west coast of southern BC was also the same scenario. There was a review that said they should be listed as endangered species and the federal government sort of what, nah, uh, we're not going to list them. The provision, there's also several other uh, runs of salmon uh, on the west coast that are, that are a fraction of what they used to be. They've been reviewed. The federal government won't even acknowledge that they should be listed as an endangered species specific to the habitat protection powers of the species at risk act and endangered species. I've talked about the ongoing problem with endangered caribou in British Columbia, Alberta, Quebec, Ontario, where this issue of continuing to log in endangered caribou habitat uh, in the woodland and boreal that require, requ uh, require old growth forests for their survival, not like the, the mountain caribou or the, the barren caribou in the Arctic that are different. So these endangered caribou, their habitats are still being impacted and lost in those provinces and the federal government threatens, but they've never stepped in. They've never intervened with the power of Sarah to protect caribou habitat in BC, Alberta, Quebec, or Ontario, uh, like they did in 2013 for the greater sage grouse. The other example that I've recently covered on some episodes not too long ago was the case of the spotted owl. Uh, on, in the old growth force of Western British Columbia and how there's only one known female left in the wild and they're still logging in the valley where she was known to be living and the federal government still is not stepping in to bring the power of habitat protection for endangered species and imposing that on the province, which essentially says, draws a circle, says this is habitat that's needed for endangered species, everybody out, all industries are out, forestry's out, like the whole works, right? That's the power it has because it puts the endangered species first. And in fact, that is such a powerful clause when it's implemented that even if the species disappears, that provision of protection of the habitat for an endangered species stays in place for a long time into the future, if not in perpetuity, because of the chance that the species does reappear. There are some individuals there that can then repopulate, or there's a rearing recovery and reintroduction program. They have the habitat protected to put the spotted owl, the caribou back into its historical areas. And so that habitat provision protection of the federal uh, species at risk act is immensely powerful, powerful, rarely used in British Columbia, but to give them credit, to give the feds credit, it was used in 2013 for the greater sage grouse, which is immensely cool that we've still got the greater sage grouse in Alberta and Saskatchewan, north of 
the 49th parallel. Super cool. Hey, you know, I absolutely, I love covering these stories across the country. I hope you enjoy listening to them. I, I do hear lots of good things from you all on that. Um, but I want to, I, I want to do a huge shout out for, for the people that wrote in about the Saskatchewan trespassing and, and the greater sage gross habitat and, and all the other people that have written in about stories that I've covered that have a little bit more information. You're able to dig a little bit deeper and let me know a little bit more of the nuance, even correct me, which is hundred percent fine. You should correct me if I'm not correct in, in portraying these stories, but I am, I value that so much that we've got this community that people are getting a hold of me and, and we're interacting on these stories, developing them, and then putting them back out for the rest of Canada to listen to because it's based um, on people that are that are in the heart of where some of these stories are covering. So please um, write me. Write me with a story that you know about uh, in an area, uh, a little bit more about one of the stories that I cover, and I will do this. I will I will pull that story back on. I'll pull your information back into the show so that the truth is being told about what's going on with uh, science, conservation, and responsible hunting in Canada. And I owe it to everybody across the country to give you uh, the truth. And I depend a lot on on all of you listening to to help me out with that. So feel free to write me at my new email address, mark at bloodorigins.com, and tell me what you know about what's going on around Canada. All right, everybody, you're up to date on what's going on around Canada, and I will see you in the next episode.